title for you today is The Sanctity of Life and Land. The Sanctity of Life and Land. I have a brief introduction for you because I've got five points for you from this text this morning. So let me begin by saying this. The Bible, the inspired Word of God, central and authoritative to the life of each and every Christian, is a book that not only gives an enlightenment about indicatives and these full-orbed imperatives, it also was penned in a historical context. In other words, the Bible was not written by a bunch of monks on the top of a mountain, dislocated from history and society and the involvement of relationship. No, the Bible is a book that was written in the midst of culture, in the midst of society, among a people group that was elected by God and favored by God, which means that its teachings not only describe specific rules and regulations for them, but generalities and principle for us. Amen? And perhaps nowhere else this is more clearly seen than in the portions of the law, for example, Deuteronomy 21, where we are today, where instructions are given that seem to be very aloof, strange, unique. We might even say extreme. Whatever it amounts to, it's unusual to read some of the things that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 1 today. But regardless of that, Every section has a conditional clause in it, which is interesting. I hope that you notice that. It says, if, in verse 1, if, in verse 15, if, in verse 18, if, in verse 22. In other words, we cannot take specific situations and say, look at who God is all the time. This is a mistake that unbelievers make when it comes to their approach to the Bible often. They go, oh, God did this and God did that. Well, there are circumstances in which there are special instances. But don't grab special instances and say, look at these general principles, because that's not the case. On the contrary, as I've already said, and I'll bring to your attention again, the Bible is a book inspired by God the Holy Spirit, written through men, dedicated to God, so that those who serve God and love God would know how to operate in a way that honors him in their society. This text was written in an ancient time, in a time that's very different from our own. Nevertheless, I believe that these conditional clauses are given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 21 so that regardless of what circumstances the Israelites were facing, they could honor God with the sanctity of life and the sanctity of land. There are five points that I have for you this morning, and having given you that introduction, let's begin with our first point, which is this, the sanctity of life, found in verses 1 through 9. The sanctity of life, found in verses 1 through 9. This is our first point. Now, there's a lot happening here, but suffice it to say that there's been a death an apparent murder. This death happened either in an open field or the body was relocated to an open field. It says in verse 1, if in the land 
that the Lord your God is giving you to possess someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him. Then the elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance of the surrounding cities, and so on and so forth. There's a handful of things here that I would like us to note. First, the death is a national concern. First of all, the death is a national concern. The elders and the judges were to get involved, presumably to perform an investigation. They're not only looking to find out the proximity of the body to the cities, but they're looking to find out if there is any discernible evidence as to how this person's life was lost. But secondly, there's not only a national concern with the judges and the elders of the cities coming out, there is also a spiritual concern. Again, not only are the elders and judges required, but in verse 5, if you look at verse 5, you will see that the Levites are required too. Now, you may recall who the Levites are. The Levites are the descendants of the tribe of Levi, and they were the religious representatives for the people on God's behalf. They would perform all of the ceremonies and all the rites. They were responsible for teaching and preaching the word of God. It was the Levites who were responsible for the spiritual health of the nation. In this case, not only are the elders and judges required, but the Levites are required too. The Levites are to be involved in this situation because God has appointed them as stewards of his word and as stewards of his truth. As we read through this text, we see that they are particularly involved in three things. How many things? Three things. Number one, worship. Number two, a blessing on the people. And number three, advice regarding the judicial matters. Three things. They are to lead the people in worship place a blessing on the people, and number three, they were to give advice to the judges and elders on the judicial matters. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to the people, here it is, to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And the elders of the city nearest to the city will wash their hands, etc., etc., and then you will purge. So we see an involvement here, not only on a national level, or we might say a civic level, but we also see something happening spiritually. And why is this, church? For the simple reason that when a death or an obvious murder has taken place, it's not only a civic concern, it's a spiritual concern. And it's not only a spiritual concern, it's a civic concern. When a death has occurred like this, then a wrong has been committed, and a wrong must be addressed and atoned for. That's what God's teaching us here. A wrong must be addressed and atoned for. And the atonement is being made through this ceremony of the heifer, and the washing of the hands of the elders and the judges over the instruction of the Levites. Why? Because a couple of simple reasons. First, God created life. Life is valuable because it's been designed and blessed by God. When we go through some texts here and we see that there are moments that 
perhaps you and I find difficult to understand why capital punishment is the answer. But here's the real issue. There are instances in which the law requires capital punishment, but capital punishment actually was instituted by God in Genesis 9, before the law. And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God says that capital punishment should be instituted because when man takes life, he forfeits his own life as a murderer, not as a killer. We don't see this being the situation as self-preservation or protection or military war or anything like that. We're talking about murder. So in Genesis chapter 9, God institutes capital punishment when someone takes someone else's life. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 9, God gives the reason for man was made in the image of God. And if man sheds the blood of man, then by man shall his blood be shed. But secondly, justice must be served. Not only does this happen because life is valuable and God created life, but secondly, justice must be served because God is a God of justice. It says in Genesis 18, 24, is not the God of this world a God of justice? The answer is yes. Our God is a God of justice. When we look at what's happening in the world, when we look at what's happening in our country, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle politically you sit on. You should be disturbed by the lack of justice that is being enacted right now. Justice is a mockery. Postmodernism has so infected our thought and our worldview that justice doesn't even exist anymore. We watch people perform crimes and enact crimes, and we just shrug our shoulders today. But our God has an expectation of justice. Our God expects things to be done right And our God expects things to be done in a way that honors him. Social constructs are being ignored. Law is all but preferential. Justice seems to be gone. But if we're taught anything by the book of Deuteronomy, it's that God cares about things being done right. And we should care too. In this case, we learn this lesson through the sanctity of life. Secondly, I want to talk to you about in verses 10 through 14, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of marriage. Now, I'm going to read this text, and you can read with your eyes again because it was so exciting, and you were so interested by it that I'm just going to continue to stir the pot here. Ready? When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives your enemies into your hand, and and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife. Now, I want you to note first and foremost that there's a bit of a time lapse here. Okay, so sometimes you watch your favorite movie, and then there's some like some great Hans Zimmer soundtrack in the background, and a year elapses in two minutes, and you're like excited. You know what I mean? You feel like you can accomplish that thing, but you forget. That actually took place in a year. They just dumbed it down in in the movie to two minutes and a great Hans Zimmer soundtrack. But what we see here is that some time has passed. There's a lapse. They've not only gone to war, but they've brought their captives. And then you see among the captives, I don't think this is happening in a weekend. I think that there's some time that's elapsing. And then you desire her to be your wife. 
You bring her home to your house. You shall shave her head, power her nails. She shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and mother a full month. And after that, you may go in to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Now, interesting text. Let's go to the next point that I have for you today. No, just kidding. A couple of things are worth noting here in this section of Scripture, verses 10 through 14. First of which is this. I want you to note that there's a change. There's a what? There's a change. I want you to note, first of all, that there's a change. And there's plain language here. I've already addressed the fact that there seems to be a time lapse here. And I I think that you can see that with your eyes. But I want you to note, first of all, that there's a change. and, and, And we see that being displayed to us in the text itself. If we take the sum of the biblical data at face value, we consider the context of passages that have similar language to this one in other places, then it would seem that there's likely more going on here than a simple cleaning. There's what's happening, uh, there's what is happening that we would call a cleansing or a washing of the past, a renewal of a life, if you will. One author writes, the instructions may indicate her change of religious allegiance. The woman begins her new relationship by removing the outward symbols of her former paganism. Another author suggests these cleansing rites initiated the woman into the Israelite family. Still another commentator says this, Moses is not encouraging religious intermarriage here, though he approves intermarriage as long as the person becomes a follower of God, like the Israelites. So we have here, guys, a symbolic casting off of one life and the adoption of a new one. This would be reminiscent of Rahab and Jericho, or Ruth, the Moabite. This would also fit the scenario since Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 forbids intermarriage. So I think it's reasonable for us to assume that They have gone to war against another group of people, but in the process of this battle, the captive woman has converted. Now, how the conversion takes place, again, it is not described to us. When we read about Rahab in the book of Joshua, for example, she was already a convert when the spies came into Jericho. She says to the spies, I've heard all about you guys and what the Lord is doing. So there seems to be an impression in them that there is a faith in the God who is doing what he is through his people. Maybe that's the same case here. It's only speculation. We're not given any more information than that. What we are given, however, is this information. This woman is going through a drastic change. Her hair is cut. Her clothes are changed. Her nails are cut. But I want you to note also that when this woman is taken, this captive is taken, because this man has an interest in her. Let's just for argument's sake say that this man has fallen in love with this woman. Notice, if you would please, the language that is given. If you see among the captives a beautiful woman 
and you desire to take her to be your wife, listen to this language, you bring her home to your house. And she shall shave her nails, etc., etc. She's going to take off her clothes of the of the captured of 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 a, of a captive. She takes off those clothes, she, but she's going to remain in your house, and then you're going to give her time to lament her father and mother. Before I get to the second suggestion that I want you to note here, I want you to see that there's safety and security in this. She comes home with him. She's in the house with him. She's not chained to a toilet. She's not being treated like a captive. In fact, she's given time. This is the second thing that I want you to note. There is time. Not only is there a change, but there is time. She's given 30 days to mourn. Presumably her father and mother were lost in battle. We don't know. But God says, if this is the case, and if this is the case, and if that is the case, then you are to give this person 30 days to mourn. And not only are you to give her 30 days to mourn, after that, you can proceed with marriage. But you can't proceed with marriage if your feelings have changed. This is not a decision, God says, that should be driven by lust. If your infatuation has worn off, you cannot force her into a covenant. She is to be, this is the third thing that I want you to note, she is to be free. After the 30 days have transpired, if the feelings have changed, then the woman isn't to be sold because she's not a slave. She isn't to be kept because she isn't a captive. She's free because she's been, God says in verse 14, she's been humiliated. Now the word humiliated in the Hebrew means afflicted. It means humbled. It seems like God is saying, if you aren't going to give her the life of a wife, then give her her freedom. You've afflicted her enough. These parameters are put in place by God to ensure the self-respect and the future opportunities of this woman. We tend, to, we tend to look at things and say, why is God allowing this man to do that? But think about it historically speaking. We don't even have to look at it historically speaking. In fact, we could just turn on the news and look at what Hamas is doing right now. That is what was normal. What they're doing now is not any different than what was happening in ancient times. But when you read the book of Deuteronomy, God doesn't allow his people to perform that way. God says, you're going to place respect on this woman. Assuming that she converts, assuming that there's a change in her life, assuming that she becomes one of the people, then you're going to take her as your wife. But if your feelings change, you're not going to bind her to a covenant that you're not going to honor. You're going to give her her freedom, and you're going to respect her. That is not found in the Quran. These parameters are not in place to give men liberty. These parameters are put into place to give women opportunity. God doesn't approve the abuse of power, as we so often see in our presidents and our senators and everybody else that has a wife that they never see and has some other 
person that they're carrying on with. We are not to use our influence for sexual advantage. We aren't to use our influence for our own romantic interests. We are to respect the people around us. There must be sanctity in marriage. Next, we see the sanctity of the birthright. As was the case in verses 10 through 14, similarly in verses 15 through 17, we see God speaking up for the least of these, for the less favored, for the thing that might be culturally acceptable but isn't acceptable in God's eyes. Look at the text, if you would, please. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, because he is the first fruits of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. We see the sanctity of the birthright here, something that has incredibly important value in ancient times. If a man had three sons, for example, then the inheritance would be divided four ways. Because the firstborn son inherited double. That was the principle. That was the accepted norm. That was the practice that was in place in ancient times. And there are reasons for that, reasons that we're not going to explore this morning out of the interest of time. But suffice it to say for this morning, a firstborn was an incredibly important position in families. But as I have a couple of things I want to share with you, the first thing that we need to share, I think, is the elephant in the room, and that is the polygamy. Let's deal with polygamy. Polygamy was somewhat common in the Old Testament, but not because it was originally God's design. Let me say that again. Polygamy was somewhat common in the Old Testament, but not because it was God's original design. Follow with me, if you would, please. If we go to the book of Genesis, we read that God created man and woman, and that was the first marriage between Adam and Eve. One man, one woman. Not two men, not two women. Not one man and four women. One man, one woman. Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus is teaching about marriage, Jesus talks about marriage, and he talks about one man and one woman. We jump forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul, the apostle, is teaching about marriage, and he talks about marriage being between one man and one woman. There is no affirmative evidence in the Bible for the practice of polygamy. I don't care what the Mormons say. 
What you have to understand is that there is a difference between God's design and God's teaching and what the historical record has in contextual biblical material. In other words, when the historical aspects of the Bible are telling us Elkanah had two wives, Penina and Hannah, there is not a verse that says, go get two wives like Elkanah did. Why? Because it's historical narrative. It's not a teaching narrative. In other words, when we read things like this, you'll notice that Moses is not telling us it benefits a man to have more than one wife. You never read that in the Bible because the Bible is not advocating for polygamy. The Bible is just saying there was a man who had more than one wife. But the original design is one man, one woman, husband and wife. Amen? Amen. Is that clear? Now, just practically speaking, I will say this. I don't know why a man would want more than one wife. If you are a husband who is worth his salt, if you are dying and living every day like Jesus Christ did for the church for your wife, you should be exhausted. It can't be unfathomable that you would have another woman that you would have to do that to. Dying and living and dying and living so that she could be happy. This is craziness. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't craziness. It was acceptable mainly because if a man married a woman and it was learned that she was barren and could not have children, he would marry another woman who would provide children for him. This is obviously that case because he has a wife who he loves and he has another wife and he doesn't like her so much, but she's giving him children. In fact, the word of God says, if a man has two wives, one is loved and the other is unloved. You notice that this scripture doesn't even talk about whether or not that's right. It's just saying, if this is the case, the main issue is about birthright here. So the first thing that I want you to note here is the elephant in the room, and that is polygamy. Polygamy is not taught in the Bible. It is recorded in the Bible, but it is not taught in the Bible. So the Mormons are wrong. Again, it was common in the Old Testament because it was culturally acceptable when a man married a woman who proved to be barren. He would marry another woman. She would almost be, as it were, a surrogate. And that was the end of the story. We do not come across texts that teach men to have more than one wife. But secondly, no matter what relationship decisions we might make in this life, whether according to God's design or not, say amen if you're listening, children are innocent. Just like in verses 10 through 14, God's word is protecting that captive woman. So in verses 15 through 17, God's word is protecting the son of that unloved woman. If a child is born of someone who is unloved and unliked, it isn't that child's fault. 
That child did not choose their parents. That child did not choose the situation in which they were born. That child did not choose the feelings that people possess about their parents. That child didn't have the option for any of those things. When that child is born, that child is innocent. Not innocent in a spiritual sense. We're all born sinners as children of Adam. I'm not saying in that sense. But I'm saying in regards to the circumstances of their birth, that child didn't have a choice. And therefore, since that child did not have a choice and was born to the unloved mother, God's word gives a command. If the unloved mother gives you your first son, you cannot overlook him. That is your firstborn son. A child should not be faulted for who their parents are. A child should not be faulted for who their parents are. In fact, if we take God's word at face value here, it's almost as if God is speaking to the community of faith to help those children whose parents are idiots. Because every now and then, magnificent children are born into the world who are good kids and who love Jesus and who have stupid parents. I don't know how to say it any other way, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We're a little late for sugarcoating things. We're facing scenarios and situations that demand us to see things in the light of God's truth. And here, a man should keep his commitments. If a man is involved with a woman, and that involvement leads to a child, that child is that man's child. We're being led to convince because men are not born with spines or chests anymore, at least not in this country. That abortion, for example, is a woman's issue because the child is in the woman's body. That child did not get there without the man's involvement. But the men go like this. I don't want anything to do with it. Oh, you wanted something to do with her last night, though. Oh, you were interested and you loved her last week. Now she's pregnant. You got second thoughts. Man, I call shame and judgment on men like that. There's nothing more despicable and unattractive to me than a man who lacks that biblical masculinity to love the woman that he said he loved. And our country is exploiting women. Feminism has ruined everything, by the way. Now, now we don't even have feminism even, anymore because the men are wearing dresses. Interestingly enough, it's, there's, a, there's a shirt out that says there are more than two genders and all the pictures and the rainbows of how many different genders there are. And, and when you go to buy the shirt, it says male or female. That's how stupid we are. The reality of the matter is commitments and obligations should be kept by men. When a woman gives herself to you sexually and intimately, she's trusting you 
not to leave her and forsake her. She's trusting you to pay the bill. Be present when that kid needs you. To teach that child how to walk, how to ride a bike, how to rebound from a broken heart, how to study for a test, how to deal with betrayal, how to deal with a difficult teacher, how to ask someone for something, etc., etc., etc. I'm talking about fathers. I'm talking about dads. Commitment. That's what God's talking about here. If the unloved woman gives you a son, that's your son, man. The other thing that just gets me fired up are these punks that have these kids and they don't pay. They decided they don't love the mother anymore, so they're not paying for the kid. Or they pay like 200 bucks a month or something ridiculous. And they've always got three or four. All different mothers, just wonderful addition to our society. These guys who have all these kids, they're in no relationship, and the woman who's pregnant now, they're not with them either. We've got to value this stuff, man. We've got to place a sense of value and sanctity on our children. To the extent that God is protecting the child of an unloved woman because God knows our tendencies. I don't count that kid because I don't really like his mother. What it comes down to is this. A, should, a child shouldn't have withheld from them what is rightfully theirs by virtue of being someone's child. Who is unliked. A father, regardless of whether or not he loves this child's mother, should still be a magnificent father, should do everything in his power to be a good dad. Let me put it to you plain. A large percentage of what we're dealing with in our society today is the result of absentee fathers and irresponsible mothers. In a piece dated June 2022 in the Chicago Tribune, there's an article which states that, quote, 72% of all teenage murderers grew up without fathers. 60% of rapists were raised in fatherless homes. 70% of kids now incarcerated in juvenile correctional facilities grew up in single-parent environments. The article continues and says that, quote, fatherlessness often leads to bad things, you don't say, and is the most reliable predictor of crime in America. The most reliable predictor of crime in America. You know why crime is the way that it is? From this liberal newspaper? Because fathers are nowhere to be found. They're not raising their young men. They're not raising their young women. 
They're off doing whatever they want to do. The reality of the matter is there are children today who are in the scenario that they are in because their fathers have forsaken them. Seven out of ten, more than seven out of ten. We have ten people in the room. Seven of them are murderers. Could you imagine that? Ten people in the room, seven of them are incarcerated. Why? Because their dads aren't there. It's a scary statistic. And it leads to our next point. Not only are we not allowed to forsake children that belong to us because of relational difficulty, there is also a sanctity of parenthood. Let's look at the text again, verses 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this Our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. Sanctity of parenthood. Parenthood is to be protected. It is to be so valued that it is not to be compromised not even by your own children. If the previous son might be called deprived, the son in verses 18 through 21, we could call depraved. Church, the sanctity that comes with the responsibility and accountability of being a father and a parent is related to this text. We could have a family unit, and we are obligated to be engaged in whatever form or fashion is required of us as a parent, a father, or a mother. But in addition to that, our family engagement affects society. It can't be ignored, and if it is, it is ignored at a severe cost. Parents are called by God and society to handle their business. We see this in a couple of ways. First, we can note that the son is rebellious against both his father and his mother. The son, or daughter, is rebellious against both the father and and the mother. We see that it says stubborn, and then it says rebellious. The word rebellious in the Hebrew is a simple word. It means contentious. The text says stubborn and contentious. Just to emphasize the point, this is behavior that is against the grain, breaking the mold of the parent-child relationship. He's refusing to be ruled and refusing to be grown in the right direction. And often we know that this is primarily the parent's fault. 
Sometimes parents just fail. Sometimes parents don't do what is required of them early enough to save them the headaches that they would have saved themselves if they would have started disciplining their child when the child was young. But that's not always the case. That isn't always true. Sometimes there are children who are stubborn and rebellious, and it doesn't matter what a parent does to influence them in the right direction, to protect protect them, to correct them, to guide them. They're rebellious and contentious and stubborn, and they will not have it. Which leads to our next point. And this is important to note. The father and mother in this text have been good parents. And we get that. From this verse, if a man is a stubborn and rebellious son, will not obey the voice of his father, voice of his mother, and, here it is, though they discipline him. There are some kids whose sin is so serious that not even their own parents can rule over them or teach them. They kick against anything in every form of authority, which means they kick against their parents. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 25 says, A foolish son is grief to his father and bitterness to the one who bore him. It's a shame what some people turn out to be, especially when you know who their parents are. What God is saying in this text is clear. These parents have been good parents, but this person is a problematic person. And God is instilling a law that is both protecting the family and the society from this idiot who's behaving the way that he is. We don't get a lot of text until verse 20. They shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son, stubborn and rebellious. That's all we get in the beginning. But then they enlighten the situation. He doesn't obey. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a glutton and a drunkard. It used to be when there was a problematic kid in the church, that kid was brought by their parents to the pastor and the deacons, and the parents left the room. It needs to be that way with single mothers today, especially with boys, because boys get to an age where they challenge the authority of their mother because they are born to be leaders. Men are made by God to be leaders of their own family, and they become adolescents and They become young adults, and they start rebelling against the mother who influences them. And oftentimes, when the mother is a strong personality, the rebellion is twice as great. Because the boys don't want to be ruled by their mother. There is an innate feeling that they have to be the leaders of their own lives and their own families. And if we don't raise them that way, we are setting them up for failure. 
But what happens when that energy, that bent, that God-given design to be a leader is negative, not positive? People have to step in and become involved so that the influence can be done in a way that protects not only the family, but protects the society as well. In reality, the words that are penned here in Deuteronomy are important for three reasons. Criminals should be punished. Parents should be supported. And the society should be protected. Let me say that again. Criminals should be punished. Parents should be supported. And the society should be protected. Every time you turn on the news, some criminal's mother is talking about how good he was. Such a sweet boy. He didn't mean to hold up the liquor store or be in that person's house, robbing that house when they came home armed. It was wrong for them to kill my son. We see too many situations like this where people are trying to change the reality of a situation so that it doesn't reflect on them the way it already reflects on them. I like what Jesus said in John 7, 24. Don't judge the way the world judge, judges. Judge with righteous judgment. Look at the morality of a thing. And be discerning. The Bible is clear about what parents should be doing with their kids. I'm going to list three things. You can write them down if you like. The Bible says that parents should take responsibility for their children in three ways. Number one, they should teach them the faith. This is first and foremost. If you raise up your kid and he's not a bank robber, no big deal. It's not impressive. If someone does not break the law, that's not something that should be praised. They're not lawbreakers. That, that's all that means. We should not be lawbreakers. So if your son, for example, is not robbing banks, you shouldn't be such a good boy. No, he's just not robbing banks. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7 say, these words that I command to you today shall be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You see that? Our responsibility as parents is to have the word of God in our heart first. These words that I give you shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. That's our first responsibility as parents, to teach our children the faith. Secondly, we should teach our children a work ethic. We should teach our children a work ethic. Please don't raise up lazy people. Do not raise up lazy people. The word, the, the job market is suffering as it is. The economic situation in the United States of America is suffering as it is. If we send any more money to the Ukraine, I think I'm going to claim it on my taxes as a child next year. Can we, can, we, can we do that? I don't know. But here's the deal. While our economy, 8% mortgages are going to be at soon. 8% for a mortgage on a house. 
$4 for gas. Our country is going backwards. And what we don't need in a time like this are people who just want to stay home playing video games all day. We need people with a work ethic. We need people who work, don't do bad, do good, not only for themselves, but for others. That's what Paul said. Let him who steals, steal no more, but work honestly with their hands so that they can provide for those who have need. That's Ephesians 4. It's not enough if you don't steal. you got to have an honest job. It's not enough if you have an honest job and you don't steal. You also need to give to those who have need, which is to say you should work honestly. And when you come to worship, as Alex said this morning, by means of worship, you should give. It's God's money, not yours. Teach your kids that. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, When we were with you, we gave you this command. If someone is not willing to work, don't let them eat. If someone is not willing to work, don't let them eat. Teach your kids to work. Thirdly, they should teach, parents should, respect Parents should teach respect. I love what Proverbs 20, verse 29 says. It says, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Not all young men are strong. Not everyone with gray hair deserves respect. You understand my, the principle here. We should respect our elders. Leviticus 19.32 says, you should stand in the presence of a gray-headed man. The Bible teaches us to have respect for our elders because they've been around the block a few times. They know things that we don't know. And it doesn't matter if we don't like the way they pass it down to us. That's part of us learning how to live under a yoke. That's the problem today. We raise up our kids with no boundaries. No responsibility. No expectation. And we should be raising our kids with expectation. We should know as parents, when our, parent, when our children are outside of our influence, that we have no need to worry about them being lazy or disrespectful. We should know, because we raised them this way, that they're going to be respectful. They're going to be hardworking. Most importantly of all, they're going to be people of faith. If you have success as a parent in these three areas, you won't have a worry in your life. These are the priorities that God gives to parents. If these things are ingrained in our children, then not only will our family be blessed, but the society will be blessed. And finally, the sanctity of the land. This is our last point, verses 22 through 23. Read it with your eyes, if you would, please. It says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death... And you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, because a hanged man is cursed by God. And you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So our last point 
is the sanctity of the land. And this is a scene in a text where a criminal who has done something worthy of death is actually put to death. And then he is hanged on a tree, presumably as a public display, a deterrent, if you will. If you remember the old westerns and they would hang people up and say, this is what happens to a horse thief. Same idea. But this isn't to happen indiscriminately. The body goes up and the point is made. The body must come down and the body must be buried. It isn't to be done disrespectfully. God has a concern for justice, absolutely, but he also has a passion for decorum. We are not to lose all sense of boundary here. It says in the end, you shall bury him the same day because a hanged man is cursed by God and you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. God says, don't leave him up there all day. It'll be like cursing the land. Now to close this section of scripture, what I want you to do is turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Galatians. This is in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3. I'll give you a moment to get there. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 10. When you're there, say amen. amen. If you'll read with your eyes as I read aloud, this is what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Galatia, chapter 3, verse 10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law because it is written, the righteous live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. Through what? Through faith. Church, there's, there's a couple of things that are worthy of note here. Obviously, crosses are made of wood and wood comes from trees. And Jesus was hanging on a tree, and God put the curse of sin on Jesus. And Paul looks at Deuteronomy 21, and he says, if ever there was a man who hung on a tree who was cursed, it was Jesus. God made him the curse for us because we're all cursed under the law because we can't do the law. So Jesus placed on, sorry, God placed on Jesus the curse for us as he hung on the tree. And isn't it interesting? He didn't last the day. He was buried. Two things that I want you to note here. We cannot do the law. The Apostle Paul says, 
Everyone who tries to do the law is under a curse. We cannot do the law. No one can say to God, I am a good person. How do you know you're going to go to heaven? How do you know that God wants you in heaven? I'm a good person. That's exactly not what Paul says here. Paul says here, we are all under a curse of the law. But secondly, what he says is, in Christ we are redeemed by faith. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Where do we become the righteousness of God? In him. This prepositional idea happens in the New Testament all the time. In Christ, in Jesus, in him. Which is to say, if you want to be forgiven, redeemed, adopted, and moving toward the glories of heaven, then you've got to be in Christ. He became a curse for you, and you become in him through faith. To close, let me say this. Sometimes these texts are difficult for us to accept. They say a lot of things. Some of them are historically unfamiliar to us and very different from what we experience today. How could a father, for example, forsake his son? Until we get to the New Testament and we learn that that's exactly what God did to his son for us. There are many things taught in the Bible, some things more difficult than others. But one thing is certain. As much as we've gone through in Deuteronomy chapter 21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. <laughs>